Welcome to Black Diplomats, a foreign policy podcast that reimagines national security on a global level. I'm your host, Terrell Starr, and my guests are two veterans who are doing the work of reimagining what security means at home and abroad. First, we have Melissa Bryan, the third generation U.S. Army combat veteran, advocate and consultant, formerly the National Legislative Director of the American Legion and Chief Policy Officer for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. She has an extensive national security background with key leadership roles as a military intelligence officer, as well as time in civil service that includes the National Defense Intelligence Agency, Pentagon, United States Military Academy, as well as U.S. Army Intelligence. Melissa is a proud alum of both HUs, and if you went to a black school, you, you know what that means, because I did, and if you ain't been to one, you should have gone, and if you have kids, encourage them to go. But anyway, uh, she graduated from Hampton University undergrad, as well as Howard Law, and she went to Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy for her master's degree. Now, you know, you go to a black school, you know, you have to go to a PWI, and again, that's Language, if you went to a black school, you know what that means. Or maybe you do, even if you didn't go to one. So <laughs> she's based in Washington, D.C. And also we have Pam Campos Palma, who is a political strategist focused on peace and security, progressive politics, and movement building at home and abroad. Pam is a former Air Force intelligence analyst and a post-9-11 veteran of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. She now serves as a trusted advisor to national level leaders and organizations and is well known for expertly bridging grassroots and foreign policy worlds through her project Vets for the People with the Working Families Party. Pam is a defense council member of the Truman National Security Project and she's on the advisory board of women of color advancing peace and security. Welcome to the show, y'all. Woo! Excited to be here. <laughs> right on, right on. You know, listen, I I, I love I I'm been looking forward to talking to y'all because I can just have fun and talk shit about the country that we love, but we we ain't naive. We we want to, you know, get this shit right. And Absolutely. And, and so that's the thing, right? I mean, what really has been at the top of my mind is this conversation with Obama when it's so conservative, you know, his moderate ass, um, and, 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 and his whole thing about defunding the police is distracting and the slogan is not right and everything. But, and it made me think about the larger conversation that we have about establishment politics, but also from a, from a safety standpoint, I don't think that, as people of color, we really spend enough time talking to each other about what does it mean for us to feel safe? Mm -hmm. Because we spend so much time telling black folk and Latinx folks that we have to navigate our safety through the gaze of whiteness. Yeah. And I'm, I'm honestly tired of that. And so I really want to hear from y'all about people who've been in the service, defending the country, just what does safety, what were you taught as as um, members of the military that safety meant? And how has that evolved from the time that you entered and then 
since you left. So, Pam, I want to get started with you. And by the way, forgive me. I'm I'm, I'm I started happy hour early. <laughs> I love it. Um, I'm really excited. I'm very here. I mean, this is just not only on me on my mind, but it feels visceral in my body because you know. Um, so yeah, I'll I'll just share a little bit about my story. Um, as yeah. you mentioned, I joined. So I'm one of the folks who enlisted in the military out of high school. Um, my mom is uh, an immigrant from Honduras. My dad is from Guatemala. She uh, immigrated to the U.S. Um, right before I was born um, in Boston. I grew up working class, and I'm one of the school to military pipeline kids. I even though I was in a advanced placement uh, program with a lot of kids, you know, I was plucked out of my neighborhood to be in this program. Um, and, you know, although my mom worked, you know, three jobs, um, minimum wage jobs, I was now in a cohort of children where their parents were lawyers and politicians. And even though I was in this cohort, um, a guidance counselor said to me, kids like you just really don't go to college. Um, and so I was very much put into this track to enlist in the military. And it was my mom who took me to the recruiter's office because she said, you know, I heard that you got college money through this. Um, this will set you up. And also, as a child of an immigrant, I've had to unpack a lot of what it means to want to belong to a country that perpetually tells you you do not belong. And my mom, I think, you know, as a new person in this country, really thought that she could give her daughter right to this nation and encouraged me to enlist. Um, so really, you know, something that I really think about a lot with this question about safety is all of the ways that people like all of us on this call, black, brown, indigenous people living in the era that we're living in in America have done nearly everything to check the boxes of what we were told we needed to do to not only be successful, but to be free and to be safe, right? So I went into the military, I've gotten the degrees. I, you know, um, put my body on the line around, you know, serving my country and fighting in this global war on terror. And really, I feel like intimately it taught me um, that the ways that we are doing things not only do not work, but are dangerous and are toxic. And I think what you were mentioning, I think as we were getting ready to jump on the call is, is that people like myself um, are expected to really slice ourselves up into pieces and only be what is palatable to the majority, to whiteness, to militarism, um, to what is established, right? And so I'm excited for this conversation. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of exciting things that we should dig into, but the bottom line for me is the military taught me the most about power. Um, I can tell you, you know, Melissa and I, I feel like have discussed and, and traveled a lot around the complex relationship that many of us have. You know, the last thing I'll say is for me, I have, I had a complex relationship with my military service. Um, just the way I feel a complicated relationship with this country. Um, a relationship where I want to love her so much, and yet the institution and this nation was never made for me. Um, and in fact, has really hurt and even killed my people, right? 
that's a really complicated relationship. And I think a lot about what kind of radical love and patriotism that is. So tell me when, when you were, tell me first, what year did you mm. join? Yeah. Yeah. So I enlisted in 2006. I was active duty. Um, so I enlisted in 2006 in the Air Force. Um, my mom chose it because she thought I could fly planes. And actually, I chose being an intelligence analyst. It's really important for me to say, actually, I didn't know anybody who had ever served. And I didn't know anybody who was in the military. Um, so for both my mom and I, it was like jumping into a black hole. Um, and when the recruiter gave me the big binder of jobs, the only reason I chose intelligence analysts was it was one of the hardest jobs to get into. You needed the highest scores. And I thought intelligence, that'll put me with smart people and it will set me up for a job after I get out. So for me, it was, I was never going to be a career person in the military. This was a job that I had to do. Um, and frankly, you know, if I'm being real, I didn't really want to do it. I was terrified. And I think a lot of people don't talk enough about how the military is a last resort for many of us, is the only thing that we're pointed to. And yet I enlisted in 2006, several years after 9-11. And it was, you know, to enlist in a time of war as a young Latina in the United States um, was very terrifying, but I did it out of love. And frankly, when your immigrant mother tells you to do something, you do it. <laughs> But that's the thing, though. But so here, here's the thing. I, what really I'm drawn to from what you're saying is, even though my my grandmother, who was my caregiver, you know, we we didn't we don't have the immigrant experience, but they taught they pretty much taught us the same thing. I don't know about you, Melissa, but whether you're an immigrant mom or or what have you, this whole thing about you know, you just, as long as you go in and get that good job and you like the, the, the pathway to prosperity, right? Absolutely. You know, that's yeah. The, yeah, it's the pathway to prosperity again, you know, and that's, I feel like America takes advantage of that. And they know that this is what, um, that it's a pipeline for us to, uh, for many people to go into the middle class, to be quite frank with you, right? You, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. My, my family experiences more along those lines. It's like the book, Our Kind of People, right? And that, um, you know, you have the folks who, you know, like you mentioned, I went to the HBCUs. My father went to Tuskegee. You know, he was a, a commissioned officer. He volunteered to be infantry in 1968 and go to Vietnam. Why? Because his father was killed in action in World War II my paternal grandfather, when my father was nine months old, he was a Buffalo soldier. And he was in, uh, if you ever saw the miracle of St. Anna, which was not my favorite Spike Lee joint, but- I saw it, but it, yeah, yeah, it, it, it tried. It, it tried, it was not Black Klansman, but you know, they tried at least. Uh, it was not Saving Private Ryan, <laughs> but- But you know, I just thought about something, Melissa, before, before you get into it, before you finish, I'll just interject. We have to talk about, I think it'd be dope for us to talk about these war movies with Black and Latinx folks. Like, that would be a dope just episode, just talking about how those things go on left, right. It's just a thought, but go ahead. No, I like that. I like that we can talk to Five Bloods because he redeemed himself there, I think. So, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. Yes, yes. Again, that's that's another episode, yep, but go ahead. Yep, I'm here for it. So, my family story mirrors that in that commitment to service. So, my grandfather was a 
he was in the Massachusetts uh, National Guard at the time, pre-World War II, World War II breaks out, and he's in the Colored Regiment. The Buffalo Soldiers, still the same from glory, if we're going to keep with the movie references. And so as you're moving forward and thinking about what does military service mean to those who are in the black, who, are, who, who came about in black America and your family stories rooted in black America, military is a very huge part of it. Even though we're only 1% of the population now, we have been funneled through this pathway to prosperity and pathway to the middle class for a long time. The, the difference is though, it has shifted as each generation has come forward. So, and I'm, I'll bring it back to bring it to context of safety as I, I, I go through this, uh, just bear with me for a minute. But when my grandfather came in, you know, what were we, cooks, supply, you know, they put us into the jobs where they didn't think that we were capable of being on the front lines. We were literally used as cannon fodder. That's the story of those who were fighting in the 1945 Italian campaign, like my grandfather. He is buried in Florence, Italy, um, uh, where, where he died 75 years ago, uh, this past February. And that's where the Buffalo soldiers were basically sent in to die. Uh, they were horrendously treated in the military. Um, they were uh, told that they were essentially uh, weaker, they were not uh, capable of fighting, uh, that they were physically weaker, mentally dumber than, than everyone else. And it, this is well documented. Um, in fact, you can just come up on just plain old Wikipedia and look and see the type of harassment and treatment that these black soldiers had while still fighting for their country, knowing that I just gotta grin and bear it and, and try to you know, find a way out of no way. And so that love-hate relationship is deep in, deeply ingrained into my family's history at the military. My father then went to Vietnam, um, again, volunteered, but he's also a Purple Heart recipient. He also had two punji spikes go through his legs for it, um, and then still suffers the effects of Agent Orange. Um, and in a lot of things that uh, were the, the ways in which we get poisoned sometimes we're in the military because it is an occupational hazard by nature. Um, for myself, my father commissioned me. It meant something for me to go to the military to follow to follow my father's footsteps and going to an HBCU, going to Hampton in 1997. So you know, I'm 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 coming of age of a different world, right? Like, and I I'm Philly born and raised. You know, grew up of you know watching Fresh Prince. You know, watching everything that was all a part of what you know modeled us that that show that will not be named anymore. That preceded the different world, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like we that that whole idyllic black middle class, you know, wanting to achieve is also intertwined in with what I wanted to achieve, and the military is my conduit toward it. And so that's why I chose Hampton. That's why I chose Hampton ROTC because it wanted to give me a scholarship, <laughs> but two, it was a way of being able to understand more that connection through my people. And that connection through our service, because this is also the time when Togo West was the Secretary of the Army, uh, first Black Secretary of the Army, last Black Secretary of the Army. And so it's important to see all these things through history is because I saw it as these were our steady inches towards having places of power and seeing Colin Powell rise uh, you know, to, to be a four-star, things like that. So safety for me growing up meant in Philly, there was just like Philly safety, right? Like taking a subway to school when you're like 13 years old, 
you know, like that, that's, I just don't want to get jumped. I mean, I want them to you know, jack my earrings or whatever, you know, like that, that's, that was safety to me growing up. But throughout the progression of my life, the parallels of the military growing up in a military family, my dad used to take me to the shooting range. My dad used to be a card carrying member of the NRA back when they weren't about that foolishness. You know? Oh, you yeah. Know. They, oh, there was a day when they there, weren't? There was. They're, they were actually about... Oh, oh. <laughs> think about it. Think about the movement, though. Think about the movement. Think about how we've come full circle from Black Panthers and how we said be armed. And then we said, no, we want to not be armed because we're being harmed too much by our own arms. And now we've got plenty of folks who are on the left who are saying, I want to take up arms again because I'm legit afraid. And I understand yeah, that. Me, and me being too. someone who has... And coming from a military family where we have access and familiarity of firearms, we, I, I get it. I mean, I'm not out here trying. If you want to tote your 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 Second Amendment right, Kyle Rittenhouse, then you can go join the National Guard because that's what the Second Amendment meant by a well-regulated militia. It did not mean you know you go out there with your ragtag Proud Boys bunch. And, but you hear, here's and, yeah yeah. But you know, I want to I, I want to interject there because it's that 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 kid. I feel like they when we talk about patriotism. I wrote an article a few years ago saying that I'm not a patriot and I think people misunderstood it and it had nothing to do with dishonoring the time that my, both my mother and father served. And another thing we don't talk about with service is the sacrifice that it has on the children because my mother came back and she was fucked up and she still is. You know, because she had sexually assaulted the whole nine yards. Like she's something. I mean, there is no Me Too in the in, in the military. Okay. Oh, it's a Me Too movement happening in the military now. I mean, it is happening. That's another well, well, topic. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, but, but well, maybe be specific. Like then, you know, when yeah. when she when she was kind of going through it, and so she, so there's a sacrifice there. But what I but I wrote about patriotism because. Our patriotism, like the patriotism of white people, to me, has very little to do with the integrity of of the country, per se, for all people. It's more about protecting their whiteness. And so I feel like patriotism is something that is enshrined in, in white men, the way that it was defined. And so for that reason is why I rejected that term. And so when you talk about that young, that, that, that young guy is, is he, I mean, he's a, he's a teenager. He's 18, isn't 18. he? 17. Yeah. 17. 17. Right. So, but you know, but the thing is, is that it, it, those are, when, when, when you think about the, the you know, the, the well-regulated armed militia, I feel like it, one is, you know, it, it, it goes into this larger conversation I want to talk to you all about about world order. You know, about what did you all learn about that because what what did you all learn? You know, and I want and, and you know like if um I, I want to go to you Pam, what did you what did you both learn about the world order, how things are supposed to be? And how much of the Kool-Aid did y'all drink and accept and at what point did y'all realize that it was bullshit? So Pam, start with you. This question about patriotism and nationalism is so important. What I think is happening right now, it has been happening for a while, but I think we are in the ruptures of it, is we as a collective country have not come to grips with who we have been, 
who we are and who we want to be. To be a patriot, to be devoted to one's country, right? means that you have to really love the roots of that country. And the roots of this country are based in indigenous genocide and the enslavement of black people and the theft and the killings of black people. And that those roots, those colonial roots that said, the global South is our playground to extract bodies, lives and resources from, right? And that is what, and, and the United States the United States of America built its wealth, whether through treasures and capital or power off the backs of black and brown people. So how can I, you know, what's really complicated for me is that as a Central American, you know, my roots being in Central America, a, a place that was conquered and meddled with by the United States, a place that has indigenous roots, I then come to this land very nomadic, now having to, I'm the first born person in this land. And my mandate is you should love this place and make it your own because the American dream says so. But the American dream is not real for me. It is, this country was made for white people. And so their patriotism is so easily slid into nationalism. So to your question, the military wants us all to be uniform for a reason, right? You put on the same uniform, you put on the same stripes, you put on, you, you, you're, I mean, I, I don't think we talk enough about what the training of the military is. Um, I think it's fascinating, but you know, from the different branches, songs to the airman's creed, it's very interesting the way we are really kind of trained and conditioned. I couldn't take off my brownness. I couldn't take off my wooden womanhood. I was queer and out to myself under don't ask, don't tell. I couldn't take any of that off. And the political military education that I went through. So really importantly, you know, I, uh, the military was actually one of the first places that I felt that I could fulfill my potential because I had experienced so much racism in schools. A lot of people don't know, but I actually didn't walk in my high school graduation because even though I was one of the smartest kids, I had one of the lowest GPAs. And so military intelligence school was one of the first places that I got to stand on a graduation stage. And I was that high charging airman. I was like volunteer for anything, you know, it's why I actually rose really quickly. Um, I became very trusted with classified information. I was briefing commanders as you know an E3. I had a very unique military experience. And I remember as an E4, I had several officers say, you know, you could really be an officer in the military. And two huge things happened. I started realizing that the core values of the Air Force, integrity first, service before self, excellence in all we do, I started looking around and seeing that there were some officers that were real pieces of shit, that were real racists, that were real misogynists, and that frankly, I wouldn't trust them to do my laundry, let alone carry a whole unit in wartime. And so I started becoming very confused, like what, I don't understand that, right? I also started realizing that um, shut up in color is a very big saying in the military. And I remember thinking there was, I was in a, a unit that was very abusive and, and frankly corrupt. And I remember thinking I need to speak out. But every time I did, it was this, it was slap on the wrist, slap on the wrist, know your place. And I became, I, I was made an example of. 
And so- Can you give an example of what you mean when you say made an example of? For instance, um, uh, for instance, <laughs> uh, I started pointing out that um, there was, I started pointing out that our air crews were being sent downrange without the things that we were supposed to give them and that this was dangerous. And I started pointing out that it was a certain officer and a certain NCO that weren't doing their job. So what happened was I started getting paperwork for my, you know, my PT uniform wasn't, you know, in order. Uh, my earrings were not in regulations. I started just getting written up for everything um, to the point where I even was forced to salute another NCO, which is an abuse of power. These ways to break you down, these ways to humiliate you, to put you in your place, um, to remind me that I was too big for my britches. Um, and so I think that, and then coupled with, as I started, I saw my answer to myself was, well, I'm going to become an officer then because I'm going to make change from the inside. And as I started looking at professional military education, um, I didn't drink the Kool-Aid, I think. Uh, the Kool-Aid I drank was thinking that I could really make a lot of change. Um, and, and frankly, I rebelled. Uh, I ended up realizing that the military and I were not a good fit, that I wanted to make change and making change and organizing, <laughs> community organizing in the military was not you know, something that was gonna happen. Um, I also started realizing really importantly that the mission started not to make sense to me. Um, when we started bringing in cultural support teams into Afghanistan, I was really intrigued by this, um, you know, women that were needed to negotiate. Um, but I started realizing that diversity started being used as a tokenism and frankly, as a shield for not having a strategy, for not having a real mission, um, for not looking at the bigger picture. So, so for me, it was the institution itself that was not in alignment with values that it preached. And I felt that, so what I did was I went to become a reservist, but even now my love for the, for this country that's complicated, my love for troops, um, you know, who don't have an outlet, who can't be whistleblowers is what makes me perpetually criticize um, the institution. Absolutely. I hear you. So, Melissa, when you think about, again, drinking the Kool-Aid, what how did you understand the world order to be in regards to military influence? And when did you become critical of it? So I mentioned my family's long military history. The, the good news of being black in the military is that you still recognize you're black. And so. And, and seriously, so when people talk about, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, yeah, I'll, I'll be very blunt in saying that there are different types of Black officers, um, and I'm speaking specifically about Black officers, of where you still are very firm in your Blackness and recognizing that you are an other in a majority organization, the, the world's largest. However, that you still wear a uniform and you still carry responsibility. I'm the role model to to airmen like Pam. I'm the one who's like the only one that everyone can see in every single unit because how many black women officers do you think you found in military intelligence? I can tell you like five at the, in my cohort, seriously. And, and I mean the entire year of my commissioning. So, um, and I was commissioned in, in 2001. So I was commissioned pre 9-11 based on Cold War rules. And so I understood very much 
the old world order and, you know, everything from 1989 forward to, you know, that got us in terms of where we are in the world superpowers place. I mentioned before, you had, you know, Colin Powell rising through the ranks. You have a feeling that more black people are rising to the general ranks. And so there might be changes within the military that will come to be, but we're just now in 2020 seeing the types of changes in military personnel, like we've talked about, uh, both of you have mentioned earlier, we're starting just now to see acceptance of LGBTQ. And once we get Trump out of office, then on day one, President-elect Biden has promised that trans ban for the military will be gone. So- Yeah, it was real stupid. Speak. Yeah, really stupid. It, it, it was bad policy. It was, it was his first policy by tweet um, that sent us all into a frenzy in July of 2017. That was a really fun ride in the press there. Um, so thanks for that one. But um, yeah, it, it, and it harmed trans people. And as we know, the trans community is by and large black and brown. So, and, and again, the, the military is a microcosm of society in that way. And so the things that we know that work for the military or things that cause harm within the military are also lessons learned that you can extrapolate for the general population. But going back to world order um, and your question, yeah, I grew up very well informed of knowing, I grew up in very, you know, the first of the unprecedented times, at least of my lifetime. Um, if they say that one more time in 2020, I think I'll scream. Um, but I, I saw the importance of the military to the degree in which this is when we're running generals again for presidential candidates. And that's when they thought that you had to have military experience pre-Clinton uh, in order to be a president. Um, you know, there, there's the, the military being so intertwined in our U.S. politics and also in the global body politic, I was always keenly aware of, but my father kept me grounded and saying that just because we're as light-skinned as could be, they still called him a nigger to his face. And then the first time, not the last time, when a soldier called me a nigger to my face, a nigger bitch to my face. And I've, I've yeah, I'm going to stop there. You get reminded of your place and where you are. So if you want to talk about world order, I'm aware of the external world order the internal world order. And I feel as though as a black woman officer, I've always had to maintain my grounding in knowing where I am in this world, who I represent and not just representing myself, but all the others who came before and are coming after and are, and are seeking guidance and assistance. When you think about this larger defund movement, in America, which I think is a very, I, 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 I think that the messaging is as clear as it could be, which is, I think these activists have a very keen understanding of what safety means and are working to empower our greater community to understand it as well, because we've grown to accept that our safety is predicated on how many armed people are in our communities, as opposed to how many educated people and healthy people and fed people and housed right. people are in our communities. And so it's predicated this, this notion of American safety on, I believe some, some cowboy notion that someone with a weapon ready to bear arms and attack and hurt somebody is the ultimate symbol of protecting a community. And 
you know, it, it's definitely whack, but. Well, it's ironic in that that's how we stole this country. I mean, that's how the country was stolen. Well, we, that's how it was stolen from indigenous people in the first place. Like you're talking about the history, like basically manifest destiny and taking up arms to do that. And that, that idea is so intertwined with these folks into the point to where they think, let me get kitted up it like all the ladies from, you know, freaking Cabela's or, you know, whatever sporting goods store I went to, to, you know, put on my militia outfit, um, you know, and look like military cosplay. And, you know, like, yeah, they, yeah. you know, and, and, and they get themselves all kicked up and they're, we have the military having secular sales to local municipalities that are like smaller than my block here in Washington, D.C. And they got MRAPs rolling down the street. Like, I mean, you don't need up armored vehicles in a local police department in the middle of USA, but we have become so fetishized with the military because it's so associated with strength and power. And people want to gravitate towards said power. That's why when Trump came into office, he nominated his generals. You know, it's that that illusion of power and what that military might projects. It's weird though, Pam, because when I used to write about military issues, I focused on nuclear weaponry, but I did a lot of conventional uh, warfare um, uh, 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 writing as well. And... I remember when I first got into it and when I was hired, because I, I, I came from a more of a political background covering campaigns, it, but I have this Russia background and this Eastern European background. And my mindset was, I want to come from the perspective of saying how fucked up war is. And when you get into this, this military journalism community, it felt like a whole bunch of fan guys who wish they were in the military. And, and, and again, like it's, that's how it felt to me. And, and, it, and, it, and you, you said it perfectly, Melissa, it was a fetish. It felt like a fetish and it almost felt what I was getting from these guys. It felt almost sexual. Like they got, it was a hard on for them. And I know that the people in the comments, I wrote for a Jalopnik, it was a car site, but they had a vertical called Foxtrot Alpha. And I wrote a lot about, okay, if you want to start a war with North Korea, realize that it will create a refugee crisis and the Chinese are at the fucking border. And they're like, you motherfuckers come through if you fucking want to, but we're going to fucking pop caps at your ass. You know, it fucking will, you know, because, you know, the Chinese they don't really give a fuck and we don't really want to be kind of blunt about that, but they kind of is. And... I was getting rammed and just destroyed and thrashed. And you're like, you know, this is not how this particular weapon systems work. I want to hear your fucking opinions about how we need to be against war and all this other shit. I'm like, do you really want to devote the rest of your human life being in conflict with people? And the same thing with Iran. Uh, you know, and I, I've spoken to people who analyze the place and they're like, do you know how fucking difficult it is? You know, like how, how difficult it is to make it for us. I remember Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, that wildy motherfucker. He, 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 you know, the former the president of Iran. And he was like, if you try to invade us speaking to America, we will make Iraq look like paradise. And that motherfucker wasn't lying. But now you have this movement now that is calling for a defunding of the military and reigning in the budget because the Pentagon leaks money like a sieve. 
Um, and so, as, you know, what what are your thoughts about the defund the military movement? And do you see any current parallels with the defund the police conversation? I'm just so excited for this conversation. I'm sorry. It's all, that's why I brought you. Melissa said the word. It's about power. I am personally, something I can't see, especially now that we're on the other side, let's get real. We're on the other side of this election. We are at the, we are sitting here December 4th, 2020. Most of my life, all I have seen is death, destruction, and corruption. So when I, when we talk about we're the best country in the world, we have the best military in the world, red, white, and blue, a lot of my grief and my moral injury comes from the reality that the best country in the world does not kill and cage its own citizens the way that it does without, with impunity here, right? The best military in the world does not ignore decades of sexual violence and crime in its ranks because it adulates generals. This, these, these kinds of hypocrisies um, are, to me, just like treasonous, you know? I just, it's, it's hard to wrap my mind around it. So when I think about prosperity and safety, what the, the abusive relationship we're in is that it has everything to do with superiority, power for the few and crumbs for the many. And so um, the, for me, what, what is fascinating is um, the social contract is deeply broken. We have witnessed it. We're living also in an era where um, I, I mean, I can no longer, I mean, I, as a non-Black person, you know, I, I, in 2014, when I saw Ferguson, I remember thinking, this is a civil war. Why don't we call it that? Why don't we understand that um, these killings and this armed conflict against unarmed Black people is a real civil, a modernized civil war? I feel physically ill now that I keep seeing these um, videos, but for some reason we keep trying to coax a lot of moderate white Americans to feel um, empathy, right? And that hasn't worked. So what I say is that the social contract is broken and really importantly, um, these institutions are my institutions. They're public institutions that we pay for with our tax dollars that I as a person you know, in this, in this land vote pay for. So um, when institutions budgets are a fucking mess, when there is corruption, rampant corruption, whether that's the Pentagon or your local police department, and these institutions are tied to our civil liberties and our humanity and our human rights, right? We have every right and it is, and it is, um, we have evolved to say, I'm going to take ownership of those resources. I don't want you to keep, um, funding death and destruction. I want you to fund life-giving institutions. And I want to reorganize our society. And really importantly, the fascists, because we are living in authoritarian slide, the fascists have no lack of imagination. I don't understand how Trump, you know, the deputy assistant, you know, the interim Department of Defense, uh, Secretary of Defense, within days of being appointed, reorganized the military. And we're over here saying, well, you know, we, we can't, we, we love to talk about what we can't do, even though it's literal lives that are on the line and we're watching it. So for me, what I say is, I, 
I am a big, um, I see myself as a commander in the defund the Pentagon and defund the, the police movement. I think that it is an extension of the civil rights movement. I think that I would be on the wrong side of history if I was not in alignment with the movement for black lives, one of the biggest, most brilliant movements in the world. People forget that the movement for black lives is global. Um, so, so for me, like this is a no brainer. I find the conversation one exhausting, but also the last thing I'll say is I often say it's easy to know the Nazi that's gonna punch you in the face. It's harder to know the white moderate that is gonna poison your tea. And I am very thankful for some of the folks that are showing themselves because in this extension of the civil rights movement, we see who you are. Hey, oh, 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 absolutely. And so, yes, Melissa, one of the things that Pam brought up was a great point is, is how global this movement is. It's global, it's intersectional, and mm -hmm. it's, it's multicultural as well. And so what's one of the major differences I see with Obama and his course, because we have to remember, too, he's a moderate kind of center. He's a center, sometimes left, sometimes more conservative person on a wide range of things. Very complex person. But generally speaking, the main difference with this group of activists now is that one it's it's woman led. It's it's right. also it's just trans people. I cover these movements that so many of these people are queer. They're, mm -hmm. you know, they're, you know, lesbians, trans. And so when you think about even at that level, the 60s activists and even, you know, they even though even though black women were severely undervalued uh, and in many cases silenced by the men who led that movement, it was even when women were there, it was very much a cisgendered movement. Now, you were now when you have all these identities the conversation about safety is a lot more complex. And I think that the Obamas of the world, as, as intelligent as I think they are, don't have the cultural and personal uh, competencies to understand how people are, are, are really fleshing out what safety means because it's from a cisgender hetero framework. And then also it's very much in line with the movements in Nigeria because remember a lot of these people, they come from an immigrant and it's an immigrant network too. Right. So it, there, there are a lot of coalitions that you, we notice uh, BLM. I think there's one critical reason that, that the crux of why, and that's because what you're mentioning are all marginalized people. And so all, all of these are marginalized people who are punching in from the fringes, right? All of us who have, even if we've been a part of, uh, an institution like the military, or I was with the American Legion, 100-year-old veteran service organization, very white, very conservative. Um, you know, there, there's, when, when people are so grounded and you're fighting either within a system or you're fighting against the system from the margins and the outside, every single group that you've talked about and the intersectionality of the movements now is because, it's because one, at least history has allowed us to live our more authentic selves. So the cost of that is, sometimes violence upon our bodies. And every last one of the groups you mentioned is a group that has had historical infliction of violence upon our bodies. Whether you're, yeah, I mean, and, and even if you can, you know, I, I wear my skin, I wear my, my, my color, I wear my, my, my womanhood. Um, I would also argue it's different now because I know that there was always this tension within 
well, do you call LGBTQ minorities? And, and, and do, or do they, have they been through the same struggle? And, and I think that's all a part of what's still evolving generationally in between Gen X and, and tail end Gen X folks, you know, like myself who are, I don't know, Xennials or whatever the hell they call us now, I don't know. But, you know, that versus Obama who were like the tail end boomers who are a little bit more woke, but not quite there. Like they know that they need to evolve, but they have a little bit further to go. They need to see that, yes, for trans folks, they don't take that off, generally speaking, either. And you don't just meld into society where people will accept you. And when you felt othered in that sort of way, when you know that this was not built for you, to Pam's point, then you are going to naturally rebel and you're going to be more likely to join in like-minded coalitions. Because one of the problems that I think we've seen um, you know, obviously there's this, the, the, the case of, you know, why do Democrats continue to court white women when we've seen the numbers go up this election cycle of, of them turning against Democrats? Why don't we see that reward go to, um, to black women like Stacey Abrams and, and others who were, who have been there historically leading the charge? So, I mean, there's a lot out of that, but I think that the reason why you see that intersectionality in the movement now, it, it comes down to that. Cross. But what do you think about the, so the, the the thing about defunding the Pentagon, and and I was speaking to Representative uh, Barbara Lee about this. There is a vote in the uh, House, you know, then went to the Senate. Basically, it was, it ultimately the, the, there is a call for a ten percent cut in the annual budget. Uh, it yeah. didn't succeed, but there are more votes for it at all levels than ever before. So there is some progress, and so. Representative Lee was telling me that they will be more specific about the type of platforms, the type of, you know, they'll be more specific about what that means. But she also told me that she and others in different ways, that there are a lot of people who are in Congress who don't really understand the budget and don't really understand how military and how and, and how weapon systems function, for example, yep. they like at the at the basic level. Right. And and, and one, only reason that I know it is because I wrote about it as a journalist. So, you know, I, I could tell you, for example, from a nuclear weapon standpoint, our ground mid-core system is shit and give you into the and break and break down the reasons like why it is. Right. And so a lot of people who are elected in the office, they're not elected to have that type of acumen in many cases, unless they served in the military and they actually took time to learn. And so with the, so 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 with y'all, like what what would you say? about to people who are weary about the uh, about a 10 percent cut which is very meager generally you know what what would you say to folks who are weary about that well let, let's walk that back for a little bit because first let's talk about the members of congress and their lack of military literacy from post-world war ii and post-vietnam at the height of when we had those who served in the uh, in the military in congress upwards of 70 percent of members of congress were all veterans. And so that obviously informed the lens by which you were looking at a lot of the nuclear treaties that have come about since then. You know, a lot of those things are all informed by what you have was a more informed uh, elected uh, body. Whereas now foreign policy couldn't be further from most Americans' minds when we're in the middle of a pandemic that impacts you locally as well as globally. And so, um, and if you have members of Congress where now I think the numbers are around like 12% of members of Congress are, are, are veterans, something uh, very small. In fact, the numbers went down again this election. We lost two. So um, it's it's something where 
that literacy is necessary in being able to make smart decisions about the Pentagon because you can have room for cuts. And I say this as someone who has worked there and someone who has been, you know, the military capabilities branch chief for um, for our defense intelligence uh, efforts towards Iran. I can tell you that there are ways to cut even for something that's a, as, as we say in Pentagon jargon, sexy accounts like Iran, you can still, I know how, remember I said faggotization? That, that, that's what, I mean, if you've ever worked in a, in the Pentagon, everything's sexy. So, you know, it's, yeah. Anyhow. Hey, but that this shit is so fucking weird to me because military it's, jargon's just weird. I mean, it's just it's. But here's the shit is really weird to me because I grew up in a violent home, and I grew up with with uncles who sold drugs. And and quite honestly, another conversation. I learned how to analyze world affairs by watching my uncles sell drugs, like by watching drug dealers, because I think they're the same fucking people. You know, like to be quite frank with you, you know. But again, another thing, but. I grew up around so much violence that and guns and killing and shootings that I work incredibly hard to avoid it. And because I see the outcomes of it and it's a different type of violence. But again, when you, when you, you know, and this will be a perfect segue into Iran, right? Like it's, I find it weird that there are so many people in Congress who are hell bent of, of 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 agitating a conflict with these people. A fundamental thing that I find odd, Pam, is that a lot of folks don't know that the Iranians are Persians. They're not Arab. They're not Arabs, and this is basic shit. And so, like, you don't. So, I bring up the drug dealing reference. It's kind of like you 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 grow up around the block and you understand people's grievances. You understand the people that you have to walk past every day. So you can right. so you can maximize your safety, but it feels like with Iran, people feel privileged to be ignorant about them and and and, and believe that they are they don't have any leverage, you know, right. and, and it's just peculiar. So well, it's it's deliberate. It's deliberate because for forty years, unless you were a student of international relations and history, or you happen to be older than the age of forty and you watch the news. We didn't always have this relationship with Iran. To bring up to your point very succinctly about them being Persian and and you know, I'm trying to that they're not Arab, is because we've been led to believe since the fall of uh, of the Shah that they were the boogeyman, and that was started during the Reagan administration. And you know, and and he came in as the white savior after 440 days of the hostage crisis. But people who have a short-sighted mind of history don't understand that Persian culture is actually more closely aligned with Western culture than what you see with, frankly, our relationship with the Saudis and MBS. So, you know, like there's a lot of ironic, you know, relationships there and talking about strange bedfellows that we make sometimes. Um, but it's important to understand that because when you're talking about even keeping Iran at bay, yes, the, you know, uh, Khamenei is now, uh, you know, but once he came in, that it was what the Supreme Leader says that goes, Yes, Rouhani has been acting in good faith, and I want to get very quickly to the the uh, the JICPOA, the Joint Combined uh, or Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, because when I was in the um, uh, uh, working Iran for defense intelligence, uh, was around the time we were putting this all together. My my branch was uh, intimately involved in this. Iran was actually complying. We were actually getting to a point of where, yeah, we we all. I'll tell you, a lot of insiders, you know, thought this is never going to work. There's not enough teeth in the agreement. 
Um, and you know, where it's, it, it's not going to work in that, in that regard, but we recognize at least even from a military perspective, we have to try something because we can't be at loggerheads with Iran indefinitely. It was not like this before 40 years ago. It doesn't have to be like this. And their stabilization as the largest country within the region means a great deal to regional stability. And so when you understand this from, from that, that macro perspective, and then you, you, you take it back to, well, okay, what are we going to do about it? Uh, you know, there are ways in which you can apply pressure through diplomatic means. And that's what the JICOA was doing. And it was doing it very, fairly effectively until Trump pulled us out of it. And, you know, that's why I would caution to, I, I don't speak for the administration. Um, I must put that disclaimer out there, even though I have worked as a surrogate for the, for the campaign. But I'm not uh, stating a campaign uh, position. I would say, though, that I would recommend to President-elect Biden to look to rejoin the JICPOA within the first 100 days, or at least put something in place saying that in good faith you want to go back to it, because you need to stabilize Iran. And we need to continue with that de-escalation, especially in light of what's happened in the last four years. Because when you have someone like Trump with authoritarian, authoritarian uh, tendencies, if you will, who is like, yeah, I'm just going to poke this bear and whack Soleimani. Yeah, all right. Then, then you see what was probably likely Mossad and and you know Israelis. Then walk for you today, last week. You know, like when these things, it's like the mob. When these things happen, it's just tensions rising, tensions rising. So back to your gang analogy, or watching drug dealing analogy, I should say. And it, it's watching these tensions rise to the point to where we've got to do something else to bring it down. And so what brought us down from the crack epidemic eventually was funding of social programs and things. And so to bring it all home in terms of defunding, yes, there are ways in which you can cut programs that don't matter because we love to stand us up some task forces in the Pentagon like nobody's business, but they never stand them back down. <clears throat> and and that's just like, a, they become these ghost task forces that's, that, that are just floating out here in the ether with a line item in a budget. And there are ways in which you can go through that but you can't do it in the harmful way in which we did back in 2013, which was sequestration. You can't just do a salami slices of 10% of off of every program because that's not smart and effective policy. But we seriously do need to reevaluate where our investments go. And then that has that is the one place where the trickle-down economics should work. Because, for example, if we don't need to be on the ground as much, then we don't need as, on as, as many on-the-ground up-armored vehicles, and we damn sure don't need to resell them to local police departments. Right, exactly. So, so yeah. just to, like, pull it all together, hopefully. Yeah. So, so Pam, we, so working with, with the working families in New York, we're like, we're, we're, we're working families. We're both in New York. Um, so what do you think, how do you think that we can better inform people about the conversation that we're having. I think one of the main challenges is that, uh, and, and this is something that AOC is very good at and people slammer for it because they're jealous, which I really broke down in my article that, that you know, this week, they're just jealous of her and the squad in general because they communicate better. But let me not get on the tangent, but AOC is very good with, breaking down policy to people because she doesn't assume that they won't understand. So how do we, Pam, break down these conversations about what the military ought to be and to reimagine what safety is from a policy standpoint? Because you're working in, a, in, in an excellent platform and working uh, and working families. 
I've been thinking a lot about like, how did I get here um, as a political strategist? Um, so several years ago, I wanted to be a diplomat because I was, I think, especially after my military experience, I was very interested in power and genocide. I became very interested in violence. And I think, you know, um, I've always been really interested in the, and I think it comes from when I was a kid, right? I've had experiences where grown ass men, despite me being a child, a you know, child of color, I was either sexualized or I was not seen as human or I was treated as an adult, even though I was a child, right? And treated with hate. And so I've always been really interested in how do we slide into uh, genocide and eugenicism. And, you know, I was part of the table, I was part of the grassroots movement table around No War with Iran earlier this year in January. And it was a real education for me that diaspora communities are so complicated. You know, people are complicated. And at the end of the day, uh, one of the reasons I veered away from being a diplomat to being to working in politics is I'm tired of I'm tired of this really antiquated notion that the top makes all the decisions, right? Heads of state talking to other heads of state and us plebeians at the bottom floor just don't know any better, even though black, brown, Muslim, trans, we, we are the experts of security because our whole lives have been riddled with violence, right? Um, and death, you know, something I, I, I want more space to think about is I can't count on my hands how many friends or peers I've lost to um, overdose of drugs, uh, suicide because of moral injury from war, uh, killings from police and ICE, um, and climate catastrophe. Um, I've lost track of how many young people I have lost. And then don't count the number of young people that have, um, I've lost to suicide because of cyberbullying and just a, a society that is just so divorced from humanity, right? And what I see in um, this brave new cohort of public servants like AOC, somebody I am real excited for is Cori Bush, representative elect Cori Bush, uh, Congressman elect uh, Jamal Bowman, he is he is the real deal. I I mean I, I can't say enough good things about him. He's been one of the most exciting people to work with, and you know these are people that and and Jamal Bowman and I earlier this year we did an event on national security and breaking it down exactly how you just said and and I said we are the experts of our experience and there is a frankly a dog whistle racism that particularly communities of color are too dumb to understand foreign policy. Even though we come from diaspora communities, we're immigrant connected, we understand the depreciation of the global South. And frankly, um, there is an appetite, but we've been boxed out because it has been painted as too elite. You just don't know any better. And you're just not part of the cool kids club in DC, which is frankly a fallacy because look at where we are, right? And so I'm excited for the thing that we need to do and the thing that the Working Families Party is doing is um, many of us, we don't need to twist ourselves into pretzels to keep negotiating and conceding with a two-party system that is frankly broken that most Americans don't see themselves in. Because let's be real, increasingly I'm very curious that when we talk about bipartisanship, it's always been we need to work with the right, look to your right. And centrism to me, when did it become a position? There, and we need to build a real left. 
So the reason I'm so excited about the Working Families Party, the reason I'm so excited about visionaries like AOC and Jamal and Cori Bush and others, you know, Ayanna Presley, is they have a vision that ties domestic politics to international solidarity. Because let me tell you what I learned around the no war. When we came to the brink of war with Iran, and it makes me emotional, is I've watched this year, we've all had a front row seat in how regular people are not cared for. Um, I watched how people talked about sanctions and then on the and then I would get on calls with people with families in Iran who are crushed by those sanctions in a time of COVID, right? So we're in a time of COVID and you want to talk about F-35s and making purchases with contractors and you can't, and my mom is a nurse. My mom is telling me how she can't get PPE in her hospital and you can't pay people, you know, to stay home and to take care of their businesses. All of this to me, um, people know what we need and what we need to do is build the political will, the political education, um, that we are gonna save ourselves. Politicians are not gonna save us. Joe Biden is not gonna save us. We taking hold of our politics, um, we organizing in our communities and we building trans, transnational organizing, right? I'm really excited to build a Green New Deal with Germans, right? With people of, uh, of, of um, people in South America, right? So the, the biggest thing we need to do is find our people, find our communities, Right and and have these conversations because um, our people are smart. Um, we've survived, you know, generations of this. <laughs> but you know what, though, Pam, I want to interject and bring in another point. Uh, is that when you think about the squad, think about their backgrounds and think about the way that they look at the world. So you have Ayanna Presley who beat an incumbent, and everybody from listen. I love John Lewis, but. He supported, I, I, and I can't even remember her, the, the incumbent's name that she beat by 18 points, but no one expected her to win, but she did. She said that, hey, this guy may not be bad, but he's not doing enough. And so, and she went on talking about the challenges of culture, ha having the cultural nuance of the moment, which, which the incumbent lacked. And, you know, she came in and won. But then you also have Ilhan Omar, who is an immigrant woman who understands war. And you have a person in Rashida Tlaib, who is a Palestinian, who grew up in the blackest city in America. And you have AOC, who also, you know, she, who, who's from Queens. And she, you know, worked as a bartender and everything. And so the, just, so when, particularly with Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, because of their own, they, they experience a particular type of othering that is by default global. And so there is a way, and, and we're going before we get into uh, Gregory Meeks and other Congressional Black Caucus members, I, I, you know, and I, I like talking about this with people of color because I think there is a way in which a lot of white reporters feel uncomfortable kind of taking on, you know, these own groups. But I can, I, I have no problem saying that there are, and, and listen, the, the CBC is, is wonderful and, and all these things and its history is great. And, and even now, but I think that there is a difference in being a black person who experiences a othering of racial discrimination. And there's a difference between someone like Ilhan Omar, who literally comes from civil war, right? Or, or, right. or somebody like Rashida Tlaib, where 
you you know people who are of your ethnicity are being dominated and brutalized by ethno state of Israel. Like it's a completely different world, right? Like like and, and I don't care what type of oppression as a black person you have. It's different. Yeah. It's different. I'm not saying that one, you know, I'm not trying to get into the, you know, oh, this is better. It's it's a different type of thing. It's a different type of world lens and 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 worldview that I frankly think it would serve Democrats, regardless of where we need to go, you know, to a multi-party system, because I have a lot of feelings about that. We need a whole other podcast to talk about, about parliamentary versus, you know, our two-party system and how do we get there? How do we get here? So, you know, again, history, past is prologue. So working with the scenario we have, because one of the things you say as a military planner is, you know, you don't fight the scenario. So at least if you're a good military planner, um, <laughs> then looking at where we are with the democrats and bringing them together they if we want to say big tent then we need to talk about the diversity of ideas that come from the squad and i i say this as someone who has had to navigate the moderate world my my own left principles progressive principles um but then also again still maintaining the i've always i'm exhausted after I guess 20 plus years now, my adult life of always looking at the periphery of what is happening in the external world, basically, and how is that impacting and having a direct impact on our communities and looking at these global issues and then what is that happening? And Pam really touched on the human aspect of what's happening, for example, in Iran right now um, and, the and the crush of sanctions and the leading with empathy and kindness. And so, I do, Joe Biden is not going to save us all. We are going to have to save ourselves, but I would love to see us at least in the next four years work together to combat the real enemy, which has been unleashed in the last four years. And I don't want to see anyone shut out over whether you like a slogan, don't like a slogan. The point is there. At this point, we debated the slogan to death. It's a dead horse. Now we're just talking about the fact that we need to invest into community programs through the lens of or, or rather as recommended by those who have a lens of worldviews. And a great, another great example of someone who sees things just differently, like like you said, Ilhan Omar, um, I was watching, a, uh, I think it was like CBS Sunday morning or something like a couple of weeks ago, because I'm like 187 in my head. And I, and I still watch it every Sunday morning, like as if my, my mama Joe was still here with me. And so, um, but anyhow, um, they were showing about the stats and the, and the pandemic um, in Africa on the continent and their numbers have gone down. Why? Because they know how to deal with the pandemic and, and it's not that hard of a cultural yeah, mind I mean, shift. You know, you know how people think them damn Africans got it better. But, you know, but you, but are they supposed funny, to happen? But, the fuck? But, 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 but look at this. We live in an era of just such different disinformation that the, you know, Trump pulls us out of, you know, working with WHO when those lessons could have been passed down from those black people who had managed to figure out a pandemic because they've lived through pandemics in recent memory. You're, 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 the, the people, the people who you, the people who you are oppressed are not supposed to do it better than you. They don't even have clean running water in some of these places, but they still know how to wash their hands, and that's and that's the the, the cruel <laughs> irony of, of. But but again, like a lot of that, bringing in that diversity of thought. I think that the Democratic Party is finally in 2020 moving from a one-on-one -on -one level of understanding of diversity, equity, inclusion to a yeah, 201 exactly. level at least. And I think that we're moving into a 201 level of where we recognize you cannot ignore the squad and 
with all due respect to forever president, you cannot I- I- ignore things based on slogans that you don't like. Yeah, but but here's the thing though. But 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 here's the thing about Obama that I will give him credit for, Pam, in regards to the the Iran deal. So one, I'm pretty sure most people hadn't read the document. And it's really about centrifuges and all this shit that you need some a certain degree of technical expertise in, right? And I think with you all be, both being in an intelligence community, you're used to reading, um, you know, intel. And so you have a particular respect for looking at details in a way that a lot of people don't. But a lot of people are focusing on the regional grievances and Obama, in short, didn't really give a fuck about that, which was wise. Which was wise. His whole thing is, I want to make, because his whole thing, I can't solve everything and I'm not going to get what I want, you know? Right. And, and so I will give him credit for that. And so right. he wanted, in a more practical note, if there is a conflict, if that's the worst case scenario, it will be a conventional one and not a nuclear one. So that I'm just like, those are the nuts and bolts of how he was looking at it. And Melissa, you would know better because you worked on it, but that was the nuts and bolts as I, as I followed it. But, you know, what I but but I think a good thing is that what we're seeing, none of this conversations would be taking place if it wasn't for activism. And I, I was speaking to a, a historian earlier who was saying that the activists are the North Star of American morality. So if you want to go down a, a rightful course, you're going to have to follow the activists because the politicians aren't going to do that. But Pam, I'm I'm curious, you know that. Uh, Representative Gregory Meeks of the Queens, he's a new chair for the Foreign Relations, uh, Foreign Affairs Committee in the House, and he's the first black person to hold that post. And as you know, Joaquin Castro uh, was vying for that spot because he had a more prog- he had a well, I guess a more progressive vision for how policy should be carried out. So, what are your thoughts about his uh, being appointed and taking over for Ingo? after Jamal beat the brakes off of him. <laughs> um, you're hilarious. Um, <laughs> I personally, you know, just to keep it 100, um, I am one of those people that dropped everything in 2015 because I saw someone campaigning on war crimes. Um, I, one of, and frankly, now that on the other end, on the other side of the election, I personally have been the most politicized by this question about one of the biggest organizing lessons I think of this moment is how starved our people are for representation. That's super real to see ourselves, to even hear the words, the first black anything in power in this moment to many folks feels so healing even because the trauma is so severe. And one of the, when I hear like this person is more progressive, I always wonder why, what makes them more progressive and what makes them more progressive, particularly if they are a person of color, if they are a marginalized person, is that they are not willing to shrink themselves to white supremacy or to traditionalism or to corporatism, right? They're not willing to go by traditional conventional knowledge that was shaped by white men in power, right? AOC usually says my, a lot of people are mad because my world doesn't revolve around white men like most people do. She's not negotiating on that capital, right? And so Gregory Meeks, I am not surprised by all, at all that he 
you know, rallied. Um, and what I think is really interesting is that in a moment where our country is exploding with direct action and activism and people who have never, I mean, I can tell you how many veterans are coming to me saying, I went to my first rally. I went to my first Black Lives Matter rally and, I, and I'm signing up now to do more, right? In a moment of renaissance in this country, you have a choice. You can make progressives your partners or your opponents. And I don't know why you keep wanting to make people like me, the movement for Black Lives, the immigrant rights movement, your opponents. It's foolish. But there is a lot of power in going along to get along because our people have had to do that for centuries, right? And I think that with some of the older, our elders, it's even harder, right? One of the people that does inspire me a lot is John Lewis. John Lewis passing um, really affected me on a, on a really deep level because I believe that we need to have public servants that are also organizers, that in their hearts are activists because that means that they have a moral compass. Frankly, Gregory Meeks, you know, he has a choice. You know, you don't just get to be the first black, uh, you know, head of head of HVAC and not carry that and not bring our communities with you and carry it with real authenticity, right? We we cannot continue to say, oh, well, if you critique occupation, you're anti-Semitic, you are anti-military, you are anti-soldier. To critique our institutions, to critique traditional ways that have not worked is patriotic. It is a radical love. To put yourself in the, in the gap of these hard conversations means that I actually care about you, that I actually care about soldiers and I care about our future, right? So, so that's the choice that they have. So, you know, I am, um, like I said, I'm excited for some of the progress. I also feel like the stakes are high. A lot of people in this country voted for Donald Trump. A lot of people across the world not only saw us topple a fascist, but they also saw that America is kind of okay with fascism, right? And so we can either be bold, right? Or we can continue to fall back into incremental piecemeal, you know, let's shrink ourselves for white supremacy when white supremacy is our threat. Absolutely. So listen, I want to kind of close out um, with another point in the last question uh, briefly would be, we have a very unsophisticated understanding of Dr. Martin Luther King's life. Severely misunderstood, misunderstood. Every month I try to go to the King Center and you can go to the digital files. And you can read his letters. And one of my favorite activities is to read all the hate mail and look at the way they talked about white people. They talk, talk, talk to white people. And if you really read his work, he really didn't care for them that much. If, if we really are like really frank about the ways people thought that he was just, oh, singing Kumbaya. Like if you read the the thing that his responses to criticism, the whole the white moderate line line that everyone refers to is just surface level of how he interrogated white moderation. That's surface level and very surface level. And going back to your point, Pam, about our elders and being challenged when MLK started criticizing the Vietnam War. He was at odds with a lot of established black organizations. A lot of people didn't do that. When he had a global mindset and he expanded what safety means for all peoples across the world, that was something that I think even today, as much as people, Santa Claus, his legacy now, 
they were, you know, they would be the very same people, critic, you know, they, they're the very same people who are criticizing the outlooks of an Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib and those people who take a more critical look at Israel or Saudi Arabia, you know, and, and all these other places. Uh, but it's just interesting how people reimagine, how people lack of history, to be clear, informs the ignorance that come out of their mouth and the lack of respect for activist work and how it progresses um, our society. And I would challenge that with, you know, President Obama. Uh, but my last question to you all, you know, to close out is when you all think about safety, what, 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 as, as two veterans who've defended this country in, in, in honor, what, how should we all reimagine safety for this country in this world with you, Melissa, we'll, we'll go. We should really reimagine the safety in this world as a, go, a revisiting of our social contract to, to borrow from, I think where we started the conversation of where Pam talked about the social contract being broken. It has been broken on multiple levels. It has been broken at the, at the local state, federal level and, and even globally. We, this is why I talked before about rejoining the JICPOA. We need to rejoin the Paris Accord. We need to, you know, on a global level, you know, refer, we, there's a lot of writing of the ship that we have to do. And frankly, like, I don't have time for negotiation on a lot of the other bickering on things because some things we just fundamentally have to do day one and, and just get us back on track. Um, when we then have that approach of safety at, at multiple levels, we also need to learn how to walk and chew gum. And we can't continue to rest anymore on our laurels in that recognizing that we have a global pandemic, a health pandemic, we have a domestic crisis, and we have foreign crisis all converging in 2021. And we all have to be focused on, on these things simultaneously because they're all inextricably linked. And being able to resolve these issues is going to result off of tripwires from one versus the other um, item. And I think that when we think of safety, when we realize that community, when we rethink and reimagine what defunded police means in terms of funding social programs on a local level, how does that create for better society? How does that create for a more informed and less divisive local electorate? How does that create better lawmakers, better administrators? How does that then grow into how can we eventually evolve into the type of country that will be a country that cares about safety for all, even though this is not in any way, shape or form the way in which we originated. And that goes back to, again, what Pam has said is that within 2020, the, the main takeaway of this year is that there must be a reckoning before we can think about anything in terms of safety and, um, and, and really healthy outcomes for all of us. You know, that's not going to come about until we reckon with what has come in the past. We look at it with a critical eye. Dissent is patriotic, um, you know, as, as our, you know, beloved RBG, you know, always would say. And we have to recognize that the inclusiveness of voices needs to be all of those voices in order to do it. But I would love for all of us to put the knives down, at least in the infighting, at least in the interim, until we get our shit together and can defeat the number one cause of all of our ire, and that is Donald Trump, because we've got less than two more months of this that could still be destructive. He's trying to wreck everything on the way out the door. And, and that's what I would love to see his focus on and say, you know, just 
mark those clear things that we must do to bring safety to all of us. And all of these things are linked and we can achieve it together. Got it. And um, I, I can't help but but say that um, squad ain't started. I'm just at it. But 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 go ahead. But go but go ahead, Pam. My own PTSD has been really activated this year. Um, I think about the scale of death that this country has witnessed. I'm so afraid of the psychosis. I mean, if you really just even try to think back to February 2020, um, I have a hard time remembering it because the trauma has really impaired my memory. Um, I saw violence up close because of my military career at a very young and formidable age. And so I personally do not believe in the peace and doves uh, pacifism because I know that violence is real and it exists. I also, you know, believe that the way that our society is organized is fundamentally toxic and corrupt. And so for me, what is safety is super simple. It's freedom and justice for everyone. This is the mandate. This is the promise that does not yet exist. It is the North Star that I believe in. What does it mean to be free, right? If you are Ahmad Aubrey, to be free to run without fear, right? If you're a Breonna Taylor, to be free to sleep. If you are a climate, you know, a land defender in Honduras, to feel free to not be assassinated because you're just trying to prevent corporate extraction. Um, to be free to move, right? And to have justice um, when frankly shit goes down. What does justice really actually mean for people like us? Um, so for me, it's really simple. I, you know, and I, I say this kind of, I have never been more clear on what is needed in our country and our institutions. I feel like my edges are a little bit sharper. I feel that respectability, you know, I've lived my whole life trying to be respectable and it has not saved my people more. Um, and so I'm coming into the next four years with like a little bit of warrior and a little bit of diplomat, right? Um, and I feel that my love for my people and who we can be is, extremely um, powerful. And let's not forget what is radical today is heroism tomorrow, right? The dreamers got beat up pretty hard when they were fighting for basic human rights. Black Lives Matter um, organizers, it was controversial to say Black Lives Matter, right? And I don't wanna wait 70 years, right? It took me a long time to realize who Ella Baker was because the only thing I was told was Rosa Parks. I don't want this generation to have to wait 70 years to realize that we're living and breathing and walking on this earth with real freedom fighters. Um, so that's, that's, you know, and this is an international and global fight. There are the reason that the war machine, a lot of people are getting very, very astronomically rich off a war economy. That is why it is so dangerous to disrupt it. That is why MLK was assassinated when he did. And that is why an anti-war movement is so hard. But frankly, we have to remember that this society in this moment of COVID and death has never been more primed to take back its resources, to reorganize our society that puts humans before profit. So that to me is what safety looks like. It's pretty simple. Um, and I, this is so, I believe in us. I really believe we can build it, you know, and not just talk about it. Yeah, this is the most uh this this is what a patriotic conversation sounds like. Yeah. It's loving love I mean hating this country is loving this country and 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 all the complexities that she brings with her and it's 
it's it's something that is real that is personal it's something where Pam and I have been on many calls together where we fought back tears in trying to make this mess of of a country better because it is worth it, you know, and 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 that's what being a patriot is, and it's not this false jingoism that it's been bastardized into um in the last few, like decade or so absolutely and and if we're talking about this type of conversation, then yeah i I'll, I'll accept patriotism if we're talking about this, yes. And, and I think that as we go, I mean, we, it probably may be a situation where we need to reimagine patriotism and, and, and create our own narrative around it about what it means. Uh, we'll, we'll be a lot better than, than the white people who, who, who the Blue Lives Matter folks. We'll be a lot better about that. But anyway, listen, I'm really grateful that y'all took the time to pour yourselves out for us today. I, I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, we're going to. We gonna liberate this motherfucker. Thank y'all. <laughs> Thank you. Music to my ears. Yes. And we out. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Black Diplomats. We appreciate the support. Please go to Apple iTunes, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and rate us with a five-star review. And go to our Patreon page where you can find us under Black Diplomats and donate to our show. We're eager to grow the podcast and give you even more episodes, but we need your support. Thanks for listening. I'm Terrell Jermaine Starr, signing off.